different people have had different and, and good ways of trying to help us all look in the mirror to see our character. Today's age has its own challenges. Social media and the perception of who we all want others to think that we are. Uh, the really avalanche of depression that's sweeping across adult and younger generations today because we only see everybody's best moments when we look on their feed and then we compare ourselves in our worst to their best. Character is really a hard thing to see. It's like Bigfoot, the uh, Sasquatch in the mountains. A couple of people got a blurry picture, but it's a pretty elusive animal. We're not really good judges of our own character, but people around us, not the one who subscribes to our feed or follows our post, but the people who really know us. Husbands, our wives know us better than we know ourselves. And they see things in us that we can't see. I just met with a man this week who has glaucoma. And he was reminding me of the uh, optometrist machine that they stick your head into and the lights flash around on the screen and you push the button when you see the lights. Now, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but he was telling me that uh, in his condition there's some, there's some spaces that he certainly cannot see and those are blind spots. But he was saying even a healthy set of eyes, 20-20, on that machine there's a spot center and middle that nobody can see. We all have blind spots. You can't see what you can't see. And as it relates to your character, people have said good things, accurate things, to help us try to get a healthy assessment of our character, like, as was repeated by Pastor Rick this weekend with a group of pastors that we met with, Rick was reminding us that some of the Puritans, McShane in this case, said, you are what you are in prayer and nothing more. Others have said it this way, you are what you are in secret when nobody else is watching. Or, others have said it this way, you're not a servant if you serve people a lot. That's not how you know if you're a servant. Mary and Martha, one of them could be a busybody, but that wasn't real service. A servant's heart is not seen in how much good deeds you do. You'll know if you're a servant when people treat you like one. How do you respond? People treat you like a servant. That's when you'll find out if you have a servant's heart. Character, it's hard to assess. Today's passage really has the crosshairs on Christian character. When your inner man has or has not been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Christ and His life within us governing and putting a bridle on the old man 
and causing, as Paul says in another passage, the life of Christ to perfume, the aroma of Christ to ooze through us. That's what today's about. The title of the sermon is Talk Versus Power. We can all talk a big game, but we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in our Gospel for Life series. We'll pick up the reading in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm reading from the New American Standard, and there will be two parts of this passage uh, as I see it that I want to draw to your attention. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the Gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall not find out the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Join me again at the throne of grace. We're going to ask for God's help as we consider this passage. Father, this passage has spun the minds of many readers and scholars. Paul obviously uses some sarcasm. And he reminds them of his fatherly affection for them, how he begot them through the gospel. 
Lord, it's so easy to look at the social media feed of the church at Corinth and see their drama. But it's so much more difficult to look into the mirror as James tells us, uh, look into the Word as a mirror as James tells us and see our own heart. So we ask, Lord, that in these few moments, You would so reveal Yourself that we get an accurate picture of ourselves and we flee to the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit for the power that we must have to live a life pleasing to You. You have said very plainly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we come to You by Your Spirit, through Your Son, and ask for Your help. Meet us, Lord. Every young, every older person, male and female, oh God, would You meet each person now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Although I see two parts, I see the main point of the passage from which we get the title in verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Paul's saying that the rule of God, the kingdom of God, obviously to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. The ruler, the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ in the souls of men, in this case, the church at Corinth, or in our case, in our congregation, in our lives, the rule of God, the kingdom of God, cannot be accomplished by words. It's not a matter of eloquence. Rather, The kingdom of God, the power of God, the reign of Christ in the soul of a man is accomplished by the activity of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Corinthians had fallen prey to words. We've talked a lot in this sermon series about how Corinth prized words and speech and rhetoric and eloquence. Even had amphitheaters and places like that that you could go and buy a ticket and sit and listen to the world's best. And though they had fallen prey to being soothed to sleep by eloquent words, they had lost touch with the spokesperson of the universe, the Holy Spirit, who had inspired God's Word and had worked in their hearts, who alone has power to alter and change and transform the character of a person into the likeness of Christ. And I have to ask you a question. Because really the sermon hinges on it. Do you want to be changed? Are you okay with where you're at? Are you done? Have you gotten as much godliness as you're going to get? Have you finished? Do you desire deep, radical transformation? What's the area or what are the areas of your life that must go if you're going to walk with Jesus? Or have you relegated the Christian life to a deal you made with God in your backyard and you're just going to walk it out your way? Are you done? Or do you desire deep, ongoing transformation for the good of your soul and especially the glory of your God? To unpack the main point, talk versus power, Paul's thought in verses 6 to the end of the chapter breaks down, I think, into two parts pretty neatly. 
verses 6 to 13 and verses 14 to 21. In verses 6 through 13, he's aiming at character. And in verses 14 to 21, he's aiming at example. In verses 6 to 13, he's reminding the Corinthians, yes, in some sarcastic ways, how God's unmerited grace shaped the lives of the apostles in contrast to how the arrogance of the Corinthians had left them in carnal living. Now, both of these are true, regenerate followers of Jesus. They are saved people. But these people are in danger of jeopardizing the authenticity of their conversion. Are you the genuine article or not? Because you can't live in pride, arrogance as the passage puts it, and follow Christ. Verses 14 to 21 is about how the apostles' fatherly heart, Paul's heart toward the Corinthians, as their father in the faith, moved him to pursue them in love for Christ's sake and to live unashamedly as an example for them to follow. So first character and second example, verses 6 to 13, the point is gospel grace shapes the believer's character. Gospel grace shapes the believer's character. So when God saves you, what I'm saying is He takes the clay of your life and He presses you into the mold of Christ. He changes you. And He does that in an ongoing way until you meet Him in glory. Let's read again verses 6 to 13 with that banner in mind. Gospel grace shapes the believer's character. Now listen to those verses again. Now these things, brethren, I've figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Here's the sarcasm. You are already filled. You've already become rich. You have already become kings without us. Indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. We toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We become as the scum of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. The point Paul's making is stated clearly in the first verse of that passage. I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes these things so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. So that, that's always a purpose statement, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. One of the most dangerous games you can ever play is called horizontal comparison. Horizontal comparison. It's a deadly game. You'll always be able to find somebody that you think you're a little taller than or a little better than or in the vertical sense a little more righteous than. And one of the cancers that has affected so many churches over the course of time is the cancer of horizontal comparison. 
Some have called it cultural righteousness. When you come into a church as a new visitor, new member, you may be overwhelmed, encouraged, motivated to pursue the Lord. You may feel that you have walked into a group of believers who are hotly pursuing Jesus in a way that you wished you would have pursued Him or had longed to find a group of believers by like that but sooner rather than later what often happens is you figure out where the bar is and if it was a little ahead of where you had previously been or a little behind where you had previously attained you figure out the horizontal bar this is the level of cultural righteousness that's acceptable here and I'm just gonna find my way to about the median and as often as I can I'll just exceed that a little bit so that I feel a little bit better than the next man but the standard has never been you or me. The plumb line has always been Christ. And Paul writes, you ought not exceed what is written. You need to learn that so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Dr. Schreiner writes in his commentary on this verse, the phrase, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written. I, I love when people like him write sentences like this because he's a very smart person. And he said, uh, what Paul has in mind by this phrase, not to exceed what is written, is one of the most difficult questions in the entire letter. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Schreiner. That's because there's no direct Old Testament quote tied to it. Now we can say probably this and probably that, and the probabilities are pretty sure. Paul does clearly have in mind the gobs of Old Testament instructions that are written in the Word of the Lord against pride and arrogance. He almost certainly has in mind the Old Testament citations that are littered through chapters 1, 2, and 3 that he's already brought to the minds of his readers having cited them to point them to Christ the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages but the bottom line is clear even if the specific passages Paul has in mind are are, are not so self-evident the bottom line is clear when our behavior is not in line with God's word we inevitably become arrogant it's inevitable. I want to say that to you in a little more uh, close-to-home way. If you're not presently, right now, submitted to the Word of God, I'm not asking you what you think. I'm asking you how you live. If you're not presently, right now, submitted to the Word of God, God calls you proud. That's arrogant. What is the opposite of pride and arrogance? It's humility. How do you know if somebody's humble? Humility expresses itself in dependence and submission. Dependence upon God and submission to His Word. You can't rebel against the Word and the God of the Word and not be proud. That's why Paul's saying, don't go beyond what's written so that, so that, no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Acting as our own arbiter of truth is the root of arrogance and pride. 
And friends, if we are not submitted to the Word of God in how we behave, not just what we think, how we act, if we're not submitted to the Word of God in what we do, we are prideful. And pride is a stench in the nostrils of God. We can either live above God's Word, looking down on it, or we can live beneath it, allowing it to saturate our thinking and our behavior. And only one of those positions is a sure pathway toward true humility. So the first aspect of this passage is that point. Paul then unpacks that point with two examples, the Corinthians and the Apostles. So under the first point, that gospel grace shapes the believer's character, Paul looks first at the Corinthians and then at the example of the apostles. Look at this in verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He's speaking very explicitly and specifically to a particular group of people called the church at Corinth. And what he's saying to them is there's no room for boasting when you know that everything you have is a gift from God. What did you get for your last birthday? What did you get for Christmas when you were 12 years old? How do you brag about a gift? The only answer is you don't understand it's a gift. Gift, by definition, means you did not earn it. You didn't work for it. If you work for it, it's called wages, <laughs> paycheck. If it's a reward for your good behavior, it's called merit. You can't have merit, wages, and gifts all in the same package. What do you have that you didn't receive? And Paul's clearly thinking about the ultimate gift. This is what Paul wrote to the Romans. The wages, the price, the payment, your due for sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wages for your sin, death. Gift of God, eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all the universe, and I mean nothing in all the universe, so humbles the pride of man than the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you do remember, don't you, how the Gospel was accomplished? He humbled Himself. You can't be proud in the presence of a crucified mediator. You can't puff your chest out against your fellow man when you're standing in the shadow of the Almighty. He humbled Himself for our salvation. And Philippians 2 says it this way, even, literally, not death on a cross, that's a great rendering and translation, but the order of the words to lay the emphasis where the accent should fall is not He humbled Himself, obedient, even death on a cross. That's a great way to translate it. But it's this way if you just translate it woodenly. Even... The cross death. Storge. This incredible self-humbling 
of the Son of God. Who is Jesus that he should humble himself to anybody? He's the king of the universe. And the Corinthians were proud because they thought their great intellect and their renowned preachers were reasons for spiritual boasting. One old commentator's response so warmed my heart that I offer it to you not as just a little space filler in the sermon, but something that sent me into the prayer closet and perhaps it will help somebody else here. Whatever comes within the range of your physical powers, you may do. But to do it in a spiritual manner and for spiritual ends is beyond your reach. God alone can enable you to do that. You are indeed responsible to God for not using the powers that you have, physical powers, in an inadvertent way. And to Him, you must give an account for your abuse of anything beneath your control. But, if you succeed in anything that is good, you must ascribe that thing to God. You must give praise to Him because it is His workmanship. The more God magnifies His grace upon you, the more you must abase yourself before Him and give Him glory that is due unto His name alone. The psalmist got it, didn't he? What do we say? What do we say in response to the fact that this God has saved a sinner like me? What do we say? Not to us. Not to us, O Lord, but to Your name be the glory. The Corinthians had missed it. Verse 8, you're already filled. You're already rich. You're already kings. I really wish you were. Because then maybe I could reign with you. This is facetious language. This is sarcastic language. This is sanctified sarcasm. The Corinthians are acting as if the end of the age had already been ushered in. That the glory of Christ and His kingdom in this world had already come. And the apostles, meanwhile, were in jeopardy of being dragged off into the Colosseum as food for lions. That's why Paul says, I wish you had become kings. Because maybe if you were sitting on the throne, you could get my name off the wild beast lunch menu. So then he turns to apply it to the apostles. How the gospel grace of Jesus shapes our character. The Corinthians had missed it. The apostles exemplified it. Look at how he uses them as an example. This is verses 9-13. through 13. In this passage, Paul's using compare and contrast between the Corinthians and the apostles to call the Corinthians to live like sinners cannot. Let me say it again. Not to think. Obviously it starts here. Truth infiltrates our mind. But to live in a way that a sinner is incapable. This is the power of the Gospel at work shaping a man's character. And I'm here today to ask, have you tasted this power? Have you experienced the reshaping of your inner man? Is that still happening? How has following Christ concretely, very practically, if I gave you a blank piece of paper and a pencil, you could list them out. How has following Christ caused you to eschew carnal desires? What have you given up? 
prior to his conversion, you remember Saul of Tarsus holding the cloaks of the men who were throwing stones at Stephen as they martyred him for his faith? Do you remember after his conversion, Paul the Apostle, the same man, was nearly stoned to death outside of Lystra and he had no coat to cover his freezing body in the winter when he was imprisoned in a dungeon for preaching Christ who Stephen followed? This man had been changed. He was a different creature. He had been made alive with Christ and everything now is under the reign of him who had purchased him. Jeffrey Wilson asks about verses 9 through 13, where the Corinthians are so lavishly living and the apostles are so ignominiously treated. Wilson asks of that passage if the heralds of the gospel are still bearing the cross, then how have the converts managed to precede the apostles to glory? And I said a minute ago, allusions to the Colosseum, food for lions. I wish you had become kings. Maybe you could get my name off the lunch menu. That's what he's talking about in verse 9. Condemned to death, spectacle to the world. He's talking about the Roman Colosseum. Where our brothers and sisters, our family tree, was herded like cattle for tigers to eat alive because they wouldn't recant. That's what Paul's talking about in verse 9. I'm condemned to death. I'm a spectacle to the world. Spectacle, literally. People got their goggles out. Their binoculars. They bought their ticket to go watch my sister get eaten alive. In verse 9, the contrast and compare begins. Let me just pick out the apostles' designations. Verse 9, they're condemned to death. They're a spectacle to the world, angels and men. In verse 10, the apostles are fools for Christ's sake. They're also without honor. In verse 11, they're hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. In verse 12, they are toil, that's present tense, toiling, working with their hands. When they're reviled, they respond with blessing. When they are persecuted, they're in respond with endurance. In verse 13, they try to conciliate, that is to mediate when they're slandered. They've become the scum of the world in verse 13, dregs of all things. The Corinthians, on the other hand, look at verse 8. What a contrast. They're filled, they're rich, they're kings. Verse 10, they're prudent, they're strong, they're distinguished. Paul is, again, being sarcastic. And in his own way and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's asking them if they know what Jesus taught. Places like Matthew 16. Has your character been shaped by this? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It reminds me of our sister Amy Carmichael spent 55 years in India with no furlough, died there after 20 years of being almost entirely bedridden for those last two decades. Served little girls who had been sold into prostitution to the temple deities of Hinduism and other false religions. 
And Carmichael had seen so much suffering, so much abject poverty, but worse than all of that, so much degradation for Christ followers, so much scorn, so much shame. And toward the end of her life, our sister Amy Carmichael wrote the poem that's become so precious to me and familiar to many, Hast Thou No Scar? I can hear the Apostle reading his version of this poem to the Corinthians in chapter 4. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beast that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound, no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Here comes the question. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? Take up your cross. It's not a martyr complex. There's one Redeemer and we're not Him. It's not a martyr complex. Give me more suffering. But it is a resolute conviction. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How has your character been shaped by the grace of the Gospel? This is what the Apostle Paul's talking about. The Corinthians had basically embraced an over-realized eschatology. Big phrase for their kingdom had already come. They got a crown here, and they get a crown hereafter. But our Jesus had a cross, then a crown. He bore in His own body, our Redeemer, the marks of what it looks like to follow obediently the Father's will, and the Apostle Paul bore in his body also the marks of following Christ. Why then were the Corinthians looking for two heavens? Why did they expect a heaven here and a heaven hereafter? So many believers in church history have grappled with this passage and this truth in Scripture that following Christ without a martyr complex is a call for a consecrated life for the shaping of our character living godly and righteously in this present evil age. John Newton, famous hymn writer, wrote a hymn that we sing around here and some of you guys wonder, why do we sing such antiquated stuff? Well, it's not just hopeless romanticism. It's big God theology like this. Newton writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. What a great thing to pray. God, would you grow me? Make me more faithful? It's a great thing to pray. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. I commend that prayer to you. And then I also encourage you to buckle your seatbelt. Because if God answers that prayer, it'll sound something like what Newton experienced. "'Twas God who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, there's the Corinthians, 
I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I schemed. He humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials, God speaking, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thine all in me. Gospel grace shapes the believer's character. The Apostle Paul and his compadres were eminent examples of that while the church at Corinth had missed the memo that when Jesus moves in, He takes over. Show us, O God, a powerful picture of how the Gospel transforms a believer's character. If you were to pray that prayer, I believe He would lead you to verse 12. We toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as scums of the world, dregs of all things, even until now. No, no, no. Preacher, you don't understand. I thought we were praying. Show us a powerful picture of how the Gospel transforms people's character. Read verse 12. And read verse 13. You see, Paul's meekness was mistaken for weakness. You know what meekness is? M-E-E-K? Meekness? It's not weakness. Anybody can puff their chest out. Anybody can respond in pride to pride. But do you understand that meekness is power under control so that the two-year-old little girl can take the bridle of the gigantic stallion horse and lead that horse all around the pasture because the horse with all that power that could crush that little girl has been broken. It's not weak. It's power under control. And Paul had learned the secret of gospel power shaping his character. If you revile me, here's my response. I will bless you. If you persecute me, I will love you. Power under control. Not responding in like kind. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And has this meekness ever been a more beautiful display than in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ? Power. Power. Unspeakable power. We're talking about El Shaddai, the Almighty. He has more power in His little finger than all the powers of the universe have combined. And this one, nursed at his mother's breast, was hungry and thirsty, laid himself down to sleep. This one allowed himself to be paraded back and forth through kangaroo courts of people who thought they had power. And this one, meekness, 
par excellence, said to Pilate, you would have no authority unless my Father had given it to you. Beautiful display of God's power. Bearing up under the wrath of God on the cross for your sin, not His own. And giving up His Spirit, breathing His last. And they took His cadaver down from that cross and they laid it into a borrowed tomb. And that's where you see power under control. The meekness of the mediator laid down dead in a grave. So that prideful people who thought they were something could have their sins forgiven and have their pride laid low and have their arrogance smashed. Not with a sledgehammer, but under the weight of love. Clyde Cranford said it looks like this. God looks down from heaven on my sin and there's this huge anvil that the blacksmith uses to beat out his iron into its shape. This huge anvil, God's hanging it over my head ready to drop it on me and crush me for all my sin. Which is exactly what I deserve. But instead of that, He bends down from heaven, kisses me on the cheek, and drops my well-deserved anvil on the head of His only begotten. And Jesus, power under control, meekness par excellence, had invaded the life of the Apostle Paul. And he holds he and the other apostles out as contrast to the church at Corinth. And he asked them that rhetorical question, what do you have, what do you have that you did not receive? You can't be proud in the presence of a humble Jesus. Finally, not only are character shaped by the Gospel of grace, but godly leaders are gifts as examples for us to follow. It's one thing to be told what to do, and that's so important. God wrote us a big book, but it's another thing to be shown what to do. The previous passage touches on that, but it's nothing in comparison to verses 14 to 21, where Paul holds himself and Timothy out as an example to be followed for the church at Corinth. This is because the Christian faith is both taught and caught. If you hear something a long time, the penny may not drop until you see it in the life of somebody else and begin to believe as if for the first time that the same could be true of you. Verse 14 states this point, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That's a precious word. My agape the children of my love. He's telling them that He's on their team, that He's on their side with fatherly affection as beloved children. Verses 15-17, to 17, He explains to them that He knows Himself to be their Father in the faith. If you have had countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your Father through the Gospel. That means Paul preached the Gospel to them. He was the one who delivered the message of God's good news of His saving love in Christ Jesus for sinners, and they received the Gospel. In that sense, Paul became their Father through the Gospel. In verse 16, Therefore I exhort you to be imitators of Me. 
Now, that's a strange way for people who we would count as humble to speak. But you see, Paul had led the Christians to Christ. Therefore, as I said, he became their father through the gospel. Verse 16, they received the message of the crucified and risen Savior through the lips of Paul the Apostle. How could Paul or the Corinthians then be proud in the presence of this humble Jesus? That's as I tried to demonstrate briefly, totally impossible. And Paul's character, this is what he's saying to him now, reflected the truth of the message that he conveyed. Was he a perfect reflection? No. Was he an accurate reflection? Yes. Which is why Paul could say, I exhort you, verse 16, be imitators of me. I don't know if you've paid attention to that phrase. It's littered throughout the New Testament. Paul writes it in this verse. He writes it later in chapter 11. He says the exact same thing in Philippians 3 to the church there. He says it again in Philippians 4. To the Thessalonians, he says it twice in chapter 3. And to Timothy, who he sends to the Corinthians in this passage, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, be imitators of me. Follow my example. You see, you can't have Paul's character, Christ-likeness, without Paul's consecration, death to self. Don't tell anybody you want to be like Jesus unless you're willing to put your life in subjection to His Word. That's what Paul's telling them. I don't want to hear your words. I want to see the power of the Gospel shaping your life. Which is why Paul can say, be imitators of me. Now let me tell you the difference between humility and false humility. It might sound prideful at first for the Apostle Paul to march in here today and say, I have a good idea, why don't you all imitate me? Like, what are you talking about? Can you please get off your high horse? It wasn't pride, it was humility. See, there's a difference between humility and false humility. False humility would say, oh no, don't, don't follow me. If you're following Christ, you absolutely should say to everybody around you, if you want to be more like Jesus, watch me. If you want to follow Christ, if you want to know what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus, watch me. And parents, if you can't say that to your kids, there's a prayer closet with your name on it. And pastors, we must be able to say this to our church. Fellow believers, we must be able to say this to one another and to our lost friends and family. Because though it sounds like a silly adage, there's so much veracity to it, you're the only Bible that a lot of people are ever going to read. And seeing a changed life is an apologetic that nobody can argue with. Can you say this? What are you doing to pursue a life with Christ that's worth emulating? It was only because Paul's ways, one commentator said, only because Paul's ways were also those of Christ Himself that they became an authoritative pattern for others to follow. There was such a little gap between what Paul said and where Paul lived. And therefore, he could say, follow my example. What's the gap like? 
reminds me of the story John Snyder told here, and then I heard it myself in my own ears, and I can hear it now ringing in the back of my head. Have you ever been to some of these international airports, and uh, Heathrow in London is the one that comes to mind right now. As I was on my way to an international mission trip, they have the little moving walkways, and right before you get off the walkway, there's the incessant message coming from the loudspeaker above your head, mind the gap with the British uh, accent, which is, which is always a pleasure to hear. Mind the gap. Pay attention, there's a gap coming, you need to step over that. Mind the gap. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that the gap between what Christ taught and how Christ lived was zero. And then Paul's saying, the gap between what I told you and where I live is virtually Zero. So I have to ask you, where's the gap? Where's the gap? And are you okay with that gap? That's why I asked at the beginning, do you want to be changed? What are you doing about the gap? What are you doing about the cavernous void between what you know God has said and where you live? hoping that tomorrow it'll somehow get better? We all know the definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Tomorrow's going to bring you nothing different if today doesn't change. The reason Paul, in this passage, verse 17, would send Timothy to them is twofold. First, Timothy is a faithful child. It's clearly... A message to the Corinthians. You are my children. He's my faithful child. And number two, it's because Timothy, when he arrives, will remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways in Christ as Paul teaches in every church. Does that sound strange? Paul's saying what's so obviously there. No special powers of interpretation needed and no, you're not misunderstanding it if you can see what is written. Paul's saying everywhere I go, I'm telling everybody, follow my example. Grace Church. May today be the day that we forever say to everybody around us, if you want to follow Jesus, watch me. Christ-like transformation is the aftermath of the Gospel's power. When the tornado of the love of God in Christ blows through your once dead soul, the aftermath of that storm is a lifelong pursuit of the sweet nectar of the Gospel and love of God for you in Christ. So Paul says, some have become arrogant, verse 18, as though I'm not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall not find out the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You see, there are people there, like everywhere, who talked a big game. And let's face it, though these are truly regenerate people, and Paul clearly indicates that in chapter 1 and throughout the letter, we know that we live in a day where there are many who have a false sense of assurance. Rock solidly sure they belong to Jesus. At the same time, conscientiously aware that they are not living in compliance with His truth. 
Now that could be said of every Christian, but there's a difference between a true follower of Christ and a false professor, somebody who has false assurance. You want to know what the difference is? We hate our sin. We don't want it. We want our life to comply with the God who loved us so much in what He said. If you're okay to stay where you are, knowing there's a gap between where you live and what Christ has said, there's a gigantic question mark hanging over your salvation. The evidence of spiritual power is not how much theology you can spew out of your mouth. Job's friends had gobs of theology. The Pharisees had gobs of theology. In many cases, they had good theology. The question has never been, can you say A plus B equals C theologically? The issue has never been whether you can say true things, but as this passage teaches, whether or not you are living upon this truth. Is there power in your life for actual change? The rule of verse 20 will never be broken for time or eternity. The kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of the potentate is not words. Power. Power to change us. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, I ask God that you will be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. What a great way to pray. All power as much might as God has, I pray that He'll do it in your life. You know what the next sentence says? That you will be steadfast and patient. You just keep going toward Jesus. You're a fish that swims upstream while all these dead carcasses keep floating toward hell. You just keep moving toward God. All God's power, all His might poured out in your life for the rest of your days Steadfast and patient. Those who boasted in men needed to step up when Paul came to be examined. And when he came, Lord willing, he wanted to know one thing. This isn't an essay. It's not a writing exam. It's not an oral exam. Paul wanted to know one thing. He would know if the God of the universe had taken up residence in their heart this way, has your character increasingly been matching the message of the Gospel? How you live over what you say is, over time, the evidence that we belong to God. When Paul says things like we bless people that revile us and we try to conciliate with people that hate us and malign us, he's saying he's living like a sinner cannot. This is where I close. Jesus had so, so, so much to say about this. Do you know everything about the Christian life can be faked? Do you know that? Except one thing. You can fake it all. You can fake it all, but there's something you cannot fake. The one thing about the Christian life that cannot be faked is this. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. 
If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. They lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. You see what Jesus is doing? He's setting it up for checkmate, isn't He? He's saying, you don't have to be a convert to do that. You don't have to be born again to do that. But you've got to be born again to do this. Because you can't do it in your own power. Love your enemy. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He Himself, you start to look like your Father. He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father in Heaven is merciful. Paul's telling the Corinthians, live like a sinner can't. Have your character shaped by the Gospel. Jesus is telling His audience in Luke chapter 6, you got to live like a sinner can't. I'm not asking you how many Bible verses you can quote. I'm asking, do you know the author? Paul wants the Corinthians to know that the kingdom of God consists in power. That's too much, Jesus. Love my enemy? You see, you can't love what you don't love. We could do silly illustrations to prove it. Like, you can't root for your least favorite sports team. You just can't love what you don't love. You can't make yourself like food that you don't like. You can't change your palate. But there is somebody who can change the leper spots and make the crimson of our crime against God white as snow. There is somebody who can actually cause the deadness of our nature to be made alive again unto God. Power. I just, that's just too much, Jesus. It is too much because you can't do it in your own power. This can't happen to you unless it's received by you, not produced from you. You can't make yourself love your enemies, but that's the essence of the gospel, isn't it? God's not calling you to anything He hasn't done. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, moreover, we shall be saved by His life. Did God love His enemies? Do you belong to God? This is what Paul wants the Corinthians to know. The effect of the Gospel upon a soul. The life of Christ within a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, people and the whole church at Corinth beneath the reign of Christ, the power of the Gospel shaping the character of the people more and more into the likeness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jeffrey Wilson said, the kingdom of God in the lives of men cannot be established by mere eloquence. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit to make the testimony to Christ the means of true transformation. I'm a dad. Many of you are dads. And Paul goes in full dad mode, doesn't he? To, to close the chapter. You want me to come with the stick? You want me to come with the hug? Which way you want me to come? I can just hear him now, dad mode, saying, don't make me come up those stairs. <laughs> it's what he's doing. He already told them he loves them. He already told them he's their father. They're his beloved children. He begot them through the gospel. And his fatherly love compels him to respond. You know what a hateful father does? Go read Hebrews 12. No discipline. 
Love compels parents to discipline. It's redemptive. But Paul knows that because he can't get to them immediately, there's time for them to repent and return to Christ. Bring your character under the reign of Jesus. Have the sweet land and the green pasture and the still water of the grace of God flowing again into your soul and shaping you more into the image of Christ. He knew there was, there was time for that, so he just asked them the question, your choice, kids, am I coming with a spanking stick or am I coming with a hug? But I'm coming to find out power. A changed life. Do you have people like that in your life? People like Paul, I promise you this, if you're a member of this church, you got over a hundred of them. you got six pastors, you got a bunch of fellow members, and this is what we long for. The power of God in the life of a soul, transforming us by the Spirit under the love of the Gospel into the image of our Redeemer, until one day soon we see His lovely face. That's what we long for. Let's pray together. Oh Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way it speaks to each of us in our own particular situations, challenges. Lord, I want to pray especially now for those who won't pray for themselves. The people who are outside of Christ, who don't have a concern for their soul, who think that tomorrow may be a good day or the day after that may be a good day, to really get serious of considering your demands. Lord, we pray for those people now. And we ask that you would lovingly haunt them with the terror of your wrath. That you would show to them in your kindness what it means that they're an enemy of God and they will not win the war. Lord, we also ask that in that trembling condition, you would hold out Christ to them as the beautiful and all-sufficient Savior that He is. That they would see in His death the pardon for their sin, in His resurrection the righteousness You require, and that they would flee to Him. That's our prayer, Lord. You would save souls. But we also ask that You would sanctify the saints. Please don't leave us where we're at. Father, don't let us be content with where we're at. For those of us who are drowning in pride and arrogance, the kind of pride that says, I know what Your Word teaches, but I'm just going to do it my way. Oh God. Oh God. No. Please, Lord. Don't leave any of us in that land. And don't leave any of us in the land of good intentions. Again, talking about what we're going to do tomorrow or the next day. No, Lord. Here and now, the reign of Jesus, the kingdom of God, the power of the gospel, shaping our character day after day, more and more into the image of Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is what we long for. And we're asking you to do it, believing that it would glorify you, it would please you, so therefore we can ask with confidence on the basis of your word, expecting that you, you, you will accomplish this work in us. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.